Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week, I'm joined by David Nilsson. He is the founder and host of Bean to Bar Stool. It's a podcast that focuses on craft beer and also bean to bar chocolate, hence kind of the name Bean to Bar Stool there. He also runs a newly launched beer magazine called Final Gravity. You can find that too as well. And he's an advanced Cicerone and does some live events and and live tastings um, too as well and kind of get togethers at uh, different breweries around kind of the, mostly around the Ohio area. He's in the Dayton area himself, but uh, does, you know, travel down to Cincinnati and whatnot, but also, you know, uh, other states as well. I first learned about David and kind of his podcast was really through an event he did with Swainio and Tender Mercy uh, that Lauren Gay, uh, who we've had on this podcast a couple of times, she posted about it when she was there. And that was kind of the first I learned of David and what he was doing and then been you know listening to the podcast ever since. Puts him out roughly about three times a month, usually like two full-length episodes. And then there's also like a little bite-sized episode that he kind of puts out too. As for Final Gravity, that recently launched this year. They already have issue one out. Issue two is going to be on the way. I believe that comes out sometime in September uh, is when that's going to be released. And um, he has a bunch of different events. So you can follow David on Instagram at David. Nilsen Beer, N-I-L-S-E-N Beer. Also follow his podcast at Bean to Barstool on Instagram. And then as for the magazine, it's at Final Gravity Zine. But if you go to his personal account at David Nilsen Beer, uh, he's got a link tree and it kind of takes you to a bunch of stuff that he's got going on where you can pre-order the second issue of Final Gravity right now. He's got the episode lists out too ordering different items that he's got the first issue of final gravity too as well a bunch of different interviews that he's done some of the articles that he's done too as well so there's a bunch of stuff in the link tree but you can also visit his website it's beingabarstool.com you can get to the magazine through there too as well and then the website itself links to different episodes of the podcast that he's done different services that he offered there's like some cards and stuff in the shop area. So you can check all that stuff out. But the reason, you know, I wanted to have David on is we don't get a whole lot of beer people on. And he's kind of in this different vein. You know, we kind of did this with Jamie Ma, who was on at the very beginning of the podcast, one of the kind of the first like 11 or 12 episodes uh, Jamie was on. But he's somebody who is knowledgeable about the industry that he's in, but he also does a podcast. He's also doing writing and a magazine. He's doing all these different things surrounding the craft beer and the craft beer movement. And that's just really hard to find people that are doing what he's doing. So it's just something that, you know, I enjoy personally. And I wanted to have him on to talk kind of his story, how he got involved with it. Taking the advanced Cicerone, which he passed to as well. We've only had like one other person who's done it. I think we've only had one other dedicated beer professional. You know, Chris Bates does some beer stuff, but it's really Josh Martinez over at a Pretentious Barrel House was kind of the only beer person that we've had on otherwise. So um, it's not something that we're overlooking. I'm just not super into beer anymore as much as I was, I think. We kind of touch on it too with the ale trails and stuff and just how much bad beer you have to drink in order to complete one of those things. And, you know, I'm really big into kind of sour beers. So if they're just kind of doing the standard lager and, you know, a Pilsner and a Stout and a Brown Ale, and that's just not stuff that I'm super into. You know, I'll drink here and there on occasion, but it's not like it used to be for me. So, um, you know, obviously more wine focused. I think that's kind of comes through in the podcast and some of the people that we interview, but beer is still something that, you know, I do have some basic knowledge on and I think it's something worthwhile, especially with the amount of breweries that are in Ohio and not just Columbus, but, you know, Dayton 
I think has 20 or 30 breweries uh, that are on their ale trail there. They're in, I think, maybe volume four or five of it. Columbus, I think we're on volume eight or nine, I think now. Cleveland's got a nail trail too as well. Cincinnati's got one. They all kind of adopted the model after I think uh, Columbus might have been the first one that came out with it. But there's a lot of different breweries across the state and there's a lot of really good ones um, too as well. So, you know, when we do discover those things or things that are happening with them, you know, we want to be able to feature them. And, and David is kind of a gateway to, to all that. So it's a super interesting conversation. But uh, again, follow him on all those uh, platforms, uh, on all those Instagram accounts. You can follow us on Instagram too as well. We're at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com, different profiles for all the guests that we've had, links to the episodes, food photos, wine photos, beer photos, all that stuff is up there on the website. There's a contact portal too as well. You can submit questions, comments, feedback, or you can hit us up, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com. Appreciate those who have been writing in. Questions that we integrate into the episodes, people have been writing in uh, just thank yous um, from some of the interviews that we've done. We had a great thank you come in after the uh, Chris McFall episode too as well from somebody that was able to reconnect with him who had a great experience there at Single Thread uh, where Chris is the wine director. So that was awesome to hear and just people enjoying kind of some of the episodes uh, and sending over their feedback either through Instagram DMs or, or email and stuff. So keep that stuff coming. That's awesome to see, but also make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, whatever platform that you use, we're on everything. I just hit the subscribe button. It should be a little check mark or a follow button. I think a lot of them call it now, but that way all the new episodes drop straight in your feed as soon as they come out. Thursdays is when we release new episodes. Sometimes we'll release uh, off schedule episodes if they're a mini update or something like that. Uh, we might uh, release one on a Tuesday. I think we have a couple of those upcoming here uh, in the next couple of weeks too as well. So be on the lookout for that. But without any further delay, here's my conversation with Advanced Cicerone, podcast host, beer writer, uh, magazine editor David Nilsson, host of the Bean to Barstool podcast and founder of Final Gravity Magazine. Thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast and take some time out of your day to jump on and talk beer and, and your careers. I first learned about you. I think you did a, was a live podcast episode. I think it was at Sueno or it might have been at Tender Mercy. Uh, you did a live taping of some sort there. And that was kind of, they reposted it on Instagram. This was a, a little while ago. And that was kind of the first I learned about you and your podcast and what you had going on. But obviously there's a whole separate career that came before it too as well before you got into podcasting. So I want to kind of touch on all the things that you have going on. I think you're probably the only person who's done the advanced Cicerone. I think Lauren Gay might have done the certified Cicerone, but we haven't had really anybody on who's gone super far into kind of the beer certification world. I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get started in this world of writing for beer and, and doing podcasting? I mean, aside from I turned 21 and that's when I started drinking beer and all that stuff. But how did you kind of first get into it? Yeah, well, Ray, thanks for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. I got into doing this professionally about seven or eight years ago. I was working in a previous job where I enjoyed the work but did not enjoy the work situation. Needed to move on from that workplace and didn't really have anything particular in mind. Uh, I had been doing some freelance writing just on the side and decided it was probably the best point to give myself the chance to do it professionally. 
nothing was going to come along that was going to be a better opportunity than the one I was in. So just started from the ground level writing about beer and doing a few local beer events, public libraries, things like that in the area, just doing educational tastings. And then as I grew in experience, started going a little farther afield and doing events at breweries and things like that. The freelance writing side of it started out kind of with nothing, just like a roadmap of what I wanted to be doing and had some writing experience, just not in the beer world. So started uh, pitching publications and had kind of a, a roadmap in front of me of where I wanted to get to and kind of my milestones were going to be to do that and followed that as best I could. Were you writing like on the side when you were a librarian too? Because you were in like IT for almost nine years, then kind of at the same time, a couple of years into that, you were also a librarian on the side. And of course, that career ran about the same length, like nine years. But did you pick up writing kind of when you were working in the library and everything? Well, I've been writing, just doing like creative writing since childhood, short stories and, and poetry and that kind of things going back to, yeah, to being preteen. But as far as writing professionally, freelancing, I did start doing that as a librarian. We actually launched one of the only literary journals in the country run by a public library. So I was uh, editing that and doing some literary criticism. I'm a National Book Critics Circle member. So started freelance literary criticism, just writing reviews and doing author interviews and stuff, both for that publication and then for other national publications as well. So that was really where I got started out was on the literary side and then transitioned into writing about food and beverage. Was there a singular moment for you where you knew you were kind of done with those previous careers, those previous industries, IT, being a librarian, where you knew, all right, it's time to do this. This is what I want to do. Or did it just kind of happen naturally? And it was like, well, this seems pretty interesting over here. I'm just going to do that and just kind of evolved. Well, IT, I think I was done with long before I was actually done with it. Uh, that was not a, a really soul edifying career for me, but librarian work I enjoyed. I like the creative side of that and coming up with programming and things like that. Did not enjoy as much the day-to-day -day customer service component of it. I really got behind the spirit of the public libraries and what they're about. I'm still on the board of trustees for our local public library. But as far as career-wise, neither one of those had ever really been strategic careers. They had been jobs I had kind of fallen into, gotten a job when I needed a job. And so IT was just something that sprang out of, I was a bank teller and kind of moved into a different area of the bank. And then some things opened up and I started handling IT there. It was never something I really loved. Getting into the library, you know, I there was an available job. I was into books and, and the arts and uh, had a friend who worked there. So I ended up getting that. And so neither one was really like a, a career track job from a strategic standpoint. So I had always kind of been looking for something that I would enjoy doing beyond just paying the bills and had always enjoyed writing. So when uh, that job at the library was wrapping up, I just decided it was time to give that a try. So how did it go from writing short stories, poetry, just over the course of kind of your life, being involved with more traditional style books, you know, fiction, nonfiction, stuff like that, to writing for and about beer? Like, where did that jump, that leap come from? Yeah, that was kind of a combination of 
vocation and talent with interest. You know, I writing is a fairly transferable skill. If you can write about something, you can probably write about something else as long as you learn about that thing. So I had been enjoying craft beer for years by that point. Like most of us, you know, I'd switched over from drinking uh, more mass produced stuff and got into craft beer in the mid 2000s and had then just slowly acquired knowledge. And in the early 2010s, decided I wanted to really learn more about this and take it to a deeper level just for myself, just to understand it better. So I had some knowledge base there. And when I was looking at doing this professionally, the literary criticism, short of getting a position somewhere as like a staff critic, that was never probably going to be a viable career path. When I was looking at actually writing professionally, it's like, well, I know about beer and I think this is probably a much more vibrant and available avenue for writing. There was a lot of publications. There was a lot of interest at that time. This was 2016, 17. So the craft beer industry was still growing pretty quickly at that point. So the the skill itself of writing transferred pretty easily, and it was just kind of moving it over to a different area of interest. Why beer and not wine or spirits, you know, whether it's bourbon or tequila or whatever, sake, something else. There's all these other alcohol beverages and stuff like that that pretty big. You chose beer. Was that more of the marketplace that you were in? Was that personal enjoyment, personal interest? You preferred beer over those other things? Like why specifically beer for you? Yeah, it was definitely more of a personal interest. Beer had always been what I had been into. I think beer has a lot of selling points, uh, especially from a entry-level space. I think it's very approachable. There's nothing from a sensory standpoint that makes wine or spirits unapproachable, but there is unfortunately some negative stereotypes around um you know, the snobbishness and things like that that have been associated with those at some points. I think there's a lot of excellent uh, dynamic young professionals in wine and spirits that are working to remove some of that gatekeeping and some of that snobbish attitude. You mentioned Lauren Gay at uh, Sueno and Tender Mercy. I think she's doing that, doing great with that in her career. But there's still that perception there that I think bars people from entry sometimes just trying to get into one of those areas. And from a writing standpoint, wine writing was a much more established industry. It's kind of like literary criticism. Like I was mentioning, we're short of getting a position somewhere. It's going to be harder to break into that field. So beer had always been what I was uh, was into. I think it was easier to imagine writing for a mass audience with that. Uh, and so it was just kind of a natural transition into writing about it. So what led to you taking the certified Cicerone exam? Was that something you just discovered along the way and thought it'd be interesting to learn? Was there a purpose as to why you took it aside from just challenging yourself? It was definitely a professional decision. I starting out writing about beer and leading events in particular, you know, I had no particular credential to me. I did not I was not a professional brewer. I wasn't coming from the industry. I was coming from the outside. So if I'm going to pitch somebody on an event and say, hey, pay me to come in and teach your people about beer, they have no reason to believe I have any idea what I'm talking about. You know, there's plenty of just white dudes who say they know something about beer. When I was leaving the library and starting out uh, on this career path, I wanted something that kind of worked as a 
a credential to let places know that I, I do actually know what I'm talking about with this. I am actually qualified to come in and lead this event, to write about this topic. Not that those are required. I mean, certainly there are plenty of knowledgeable and qualified people who have not taken that path. But for me, I felt like it was an important credential to get since I didn't have something else on my resume that established uh, my bona fides with this, basically. Now, since then, I have um, taken and passed the advanced Cicerone exam. And while I think that has career benefits, I, going that far was more for me. It was more of a personal goal of wanting to establish that I had moved on to this next level with my career. It may or may not open some doors for me in my career, but it really uh, gave me more confidence. I think when you're a freelance writer, and this is probably true in any field, there can be a lot of imposter syndrome that goes around like, is this even a career? Like, is this even a real thing that I'm doing? Is this, do I know what I'm talking about? Like, have I just kind of tricked the system and found ways to get money? And like, this is not legitimate. And earning some of those credentials for myself is just kind of a way to be like, no, like this is a real thing you've chosen to do. Someone else has vetted your knowledge level on this. Like you have a, a right to talk about this basically. From my understanding, the Cicerone exam is a little bit different than the wine exams where the wine exams pretty much have three components. I believe this has five kind of knowledge areas, right? There was, I was doing some research. There's like keeping and serving beer, beer styles, beer flavor and evaluation, beer ingredients in the brewing process, and then also pairing beer with food. And then out of those five, there's like four different parts that you could be tested within short answer essay demonstration and tasting exam. So with all that, which is it's a little bit more, I would say a little bit more complicated than probably the wine exams, at least just from the structural standpoint. Was there an area that you felt going into it you were pretty good with? Like, I know this area, like, got a really good chance of passing in the knowledge. And was there another area where you knew that you had to kind of focus a little bit more in your preparation up to the exam? Going into the certified exam, which I passed in 2017, that was more about organizing a large amount of information and actually having a systematic recall for that. Beer has so much variety because it's been brewed in so many places and you have so many historical styles and um, it is made with multiple ingredients where some other beverages are, are made with with one ingredient. There's a lot of information to organize and systematize and catalog. And so in the preparation for the certified exam, it was less about specifically acquiring particular knowledge than it was about I don't even know where all these things fit. Like I have learned these things at some point, but I haven't actually put them into like a systematic theology, you know, where like everything actually makes sense. Um, so there was a lot of preparation around that. The one area that I did need direct work on was beer service on the technical side. So draft systems, uh, things like that. I had not worked directly in beer service. So understanding how to, you know, clean a draft system and the anatomy of a keg and the anatomy of a tap handle and how to take them apart and work on them and all that stuff. That was stuff I had to directly study on. For the advanced exam, it's harder to narrow down the things that you have to work on with that because it's not bringing in any new areas of knowledge so much as just deepening what you're being tested on within all those existing levels that you already tested on the certified exam. So it was more about going back through the entire syllabus and saying, are there any of these where I feel like I have not sufficiently deepened my understanding of them? 
taking things that you maybe understand and can explain, but would struggle to give all of the technical explanations for, you know, like that kind of thing. So it was more just kind of a general going back through and making sure that I had uh, the depth I needed on those. Between the two exams, the two different levels, the certified and the advanced, was there a big leap, like a big knowledge jump, a big information jump between the two? Or did you feel it was just more in depth when you got to the advanced? No, there's definitely a significant jump. I would say that the jump between those two exams is maybe the sharpest jump within the the hierarchy of those four levels. I don't have a, a plan to sit for the master exam. I think that that would probably be an inefficient use of my time and eat up a couple years of my life for a uh, for the possibility of passing that. And I, I just don't think that uh, that's what I want to do with my life at this point. But from my understanding from folks who have uh, passed the advanced and then sat for the master, the advanced is kind of the master light rather than the certified plus. So like it is closer to being that higher tier and that gap is pretty significant between the certified and the advanced. Uh, the lowest tier, the Cicerone certified beer server is like a 30 minute online test. It's not terribly hard, just like confirms like you generally understand what you're doing from a beer service standpoint. So the jump from that to the certified is, I guess, is pretty significant. But uh, no, it is definitely a pretty profound leap from the certified to the advanced. Was there a particular beer style or region that wound up being particularly challenging for you when you were doing all the exams and the study and everything? The only things, and this isn't a particular region or style, but the more obscure any given beer style is, you know, this is a, a sort of niche historical style that maybe doesn't get brewed all that time, the harder it is to get experience with it, to taste through it, to really gain an understanding of, of what the ingredients are doing in that. So that requires a little bit more legwork and intentionality. The hardest thing I would say from a stylistic standpoint, and I've heard this from other folks, is a one section of the exam is a style discrimination testing. So you are given a beer sample that could be one of several styles that are closely related, and you have to taste it and decide which style it represents. The more mild flavored a style is, so looking at something like a pale lager style, there is less to distinguish that from its closely related styles. And so uh, something like Munich Helles, German Pilsner, Kolsch, something like that, tasting, those are all really just come down to subtle differences in balance. They're, they're really not profoundly different in flavor at all. They're using the same ingredients. They're just using them in slightly different proportions. And so you don't really have anything to calibrate that against when you're in the exam setting. Like you're tasting and trying to remember like, well, I don't know, is this very, very small difference? Like, am I just picking that up wrong or is that actually? So I think that's consistently hard. Um, and I think that stays hard across all the exams is distinguishing between those. So in 2017, when you first kind of get into really doing freelance beer writing, how did you wind up finding jobs or things to kind of write about early on? Was it you'd reach out to breweries? How did all that kind of work? Because, I mean, when you're freelance, it's kind of like, you know, you could write something, but who knows if anybody would actually want it or if they have an assignment, do they have a staff writer that they're already giving it to? So how did you kind of navigate that process early on? Yeah, so with freelance writing... Uh, when you're doing nonfiction writing, so writing articles about something, it's generally that's generally pitched. So you pitch a story idea to a publication, 
they say yes or no. If they say yes, then you do your interviews and write your articles. So I'm not writing the articles and then submitting it and just saying, hey, do you want this? Uh, so as far as getting those stories, it was looking at what I wanted to write and looking at the publications I wanted to write for, and then reaching out to those editors and trying to get uh, a foot in the door. I knew early on without any bylines and without uh, any you know, any sort of reputation in the industry that that was, I wasn't going to be writing for my top publications right away. So took some uh, low paying or even unpaying gigs where it's like, hey, can I, can I write this article for you? And, you know, I'm maybe not getting paid anything or getting paid a small amount, but there's a byline and I can kind of build that on that a little bit. I would not advise freelancers do that for very long. And I would defend you not doing it at all. If that's your choice. I was in a, a situation and my wife had a full-time job that was uh, paying the bills. So uh, I had the freedom to not need to make a ton of money right away and can kind of build at it in that way. Um, and there there were some editors who you know gave me pretty big chances just on the strength of a pitch and not really with any kind of reputation behind me. And those were a big help. So it was really just looking at what stories do I want to write? What are the places I want to write for? Sending those emails uh, and doing the absolute best work I could do, even when the assignments were maybe not uh, awe-inspiring, you know, either from a, a scope standpoint or from the publication that they were for, but, you know, turning in the best work I could no matter what, and uh, just kind of building that as a routine. I imagine that there's some publication within the world of beer and beer writing that's like, you know, food and wine magazine is for restaurants or wine enthusiast is for, for wine. So, what is that publication that like that big kind of widely known one? Cause I feel like beer writing and it's not like mainstream at when you go, you know, wine writing is probably the, the biggest one. And there's gotta be a community that is really super in depth and knows all this stuff. So like, what's that big publication? Probably the top of the heap right now would be good beer hunting. Uh, it's a website, it's not print, so it's uh, web only, but they are probably the most prestigious. They just actually won a couple of James Beard Awards last month uh, for a couple of their articles. I have written for them for the last few years and have won a couple of awards for, for articles for them. They give a lot of space for their writers to write long form. Uh, a lot of beer writing, either because of constraints of space in print media or the type of articles that get clicks online, tend to be shorter articles, 1500 words and less. Good beer hunting gives room for three, four, 5,000 word articles if you uh, have a strong enough story idea to do that. So they're kind of the top of the heap on that right now. And they're who everybody is hoping to write for and hoping to continue writing for. There are a lot of other excellent publications. Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine is sort of like an industry coverage, more technical uh, magazine that that publishes some really good articles. Pellicle Magazine out of the UK is very, very well respected and doing similar types of stories as Good Beer Hunting, but at a little bit shorter and, and sort of snappier length. But I would say Good Beer Hunting is is probably the most prestigious of those. Safe to say it's very similar towards really any other print media where it's you have kind of the we want clicks, short, kind of to the point, maybe a little bit more fluff. And then there are still those kind of long form, in-depth journalist pieces, but they're few and far between. Or it sounds like it mirrors kind of the newspaper industry. 
Yeah, I would say it does. I mean, I certainly had to write plenty of listicles when I was getting started, you know, writing those like 11 IPAs you need to be drinking right now type of stories. And there's definitely plenty of that out there. And, you know, if people are enjoying reading it, great. Uh, I guess there should be venues for it. But yeah, definitely you have to find the opportunities to write those stories that you really want to write. And I think more and more as the beer market matures and as as it matures and as it goes through some changes, I know that I and other beer writers are also looking for ways to write about beer for publications that are not devoted to beer and ways to write articles that are about beer but aren't focused and drilled in on the beer specifically. Look at wine writing. Wine writing is basically travel writing a lot of the time, you know, and it incorporates all sorts of different things. And yes, the wine is mentioned, but the wine doesn't have to be, this does not have to be like a breakdown of a particular, you know, grape varietal or some sort of technical piece like that. So I think that we're getting more and more of that in beer writing of branching out from sort of this drilled in mode of writing about beer and saying like, how can we, how does this touch on other areas of life, other areas of society? How do we write about that? And that then opens up where those articles can go, because then that has more interest than just the craft beer fandom. Is there a beer awards body, you know, restaurants have the Michelin guides, wine directors and, and beverage program kind of have you know, the Grand Awards, Wine Enthusiast Awards, you know, the Genius Beard Awards, which is kind of hospitality and, and restaurants. Is there anything that's beer focused, you know, beer awards that some people strive for, maybe others don't, but does that exist? The Brewers Association, which is the largest industry trade group in the country, has two annual awards that are prestigious, but as with any awards, you do have a lot of issues with the way that those are done and you have plenty of people who just don't even bother to participate in them so the great american beer festival takes place every fall out in denver and then the world beer cup used to take place every other year is now moving to every year uh, the world beer cup is for breweries around the world the great american beer festival is for u.s breweries only but they give out awards gold silver and bronze medals in and those are prestigious and they do benefit breweries from a marketing standpoint and being able to say like, hey, this pale ale won silver at JBF. But uh, there are a lot of issues with a lot of people have issues with the way that um, way that the judging processes work uh, with the fact that it's impossible to actually judge every example of a style. You have places who just don't want to participate in the awards at all breweries that are not going to send in their beers. So you kind of asterisks next to like, okay, this doesn't mean this is literally the best Irish stout in the country. It means that it is the one that the judges liked best on this judging day. And uh, that stuff affects, you know, any any sort of judging in any food or beverage field. But uh, so on the beer side, you have that. And then from a writing standpoint, the North American Guild of Beer Writers does uh, an, an awards in the fall as well uh, to recognize beer writing. Where does the chocolate part come in the bean to bar aspect how does that wind up getting folded into your beer writing and then turns into what you kind of have going on now back early on when i was just getting into doing beer events i agreed to do a beer and chocolate pairing for a local restaurant bar assumed that that would not be too complicated and vastly underestimated the entire world of bean to bar chocolate so in the process of trying to prepare myself for that uh, event, I reached out to 
uh, London Co., who is a beer educator, or I'm sorry, a chocolate educator and uh, retailer in the Dayton area. She owns a company called Peace on Fifth and leads Bean to Bar chocolate tastings. And uh, I went to her, told her what I was doing, and she is this super enthusiastic evangelist for all things craft chocolate. So she was just like giving me samples to taste and talking about all the stuff. And I quickly realized that this was its own entire industry, its own entire world, just like craft beer, just like wine, just like artisan cheese, just like coffee, you know, whatever. I became very, very interested in it and started reading as much as I could and just kind of kept that as something I was interested in alongside beer. And then three or four years ago, both my interest in it deepened and I actually wanted to, much like I had with beer, go from this is just a thing I enjoy to this is a thing that I really want to understand better. And also recognized from a career standpoint that nobody was really bringing these things together. You had beer and chocolate pairings that would just pop up you know, around Valentine's Day or whatever, but nobody was writing about these. Nobody was providing actual guidance. Nobody was pointing out the similarities between these industries because there's a lot of really interesting crossovers from the way that craft chocolate has grown to the way that craft beer uh, had grown a decade or two earlier. Things that they are, that they have directly learned from craft beer, things that uh, they have recognize craft beer has not done a great job with and want to do better with, you know, just all sorts of stuff like that. So just recognize like nobody is doing this. Why don't I kind of make this a niche alongside the other things that I'm doing? And uh, so in 2020, I launched the Bean to Bar Stool podcast, which looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. Last year, uh, 2022, I published the Pairing Beer and Chocolate Guide, which is a like 70 plus page zine that you can order on the Bean to Bar Stool website that provides style-by-style guidance for pairing craft chocolate with craft beer, uh, and then have been doing articles interspersed with the other articles that I'm doing about beer and chocolate and the, the relationship between the two industries. Do you have you know a personal favorite kind of chocolate style? You know, The Bean to Bar, there's different percentages of how much cacao is, is integrated, and also it varies depending on where it's sourced from too, as well as to your flavor notes and everything. So do you have a personal favorite? Is it, you know, 80% from Costa Rica or anything like that? No, I mean, it's much like with beer. Like I recognize well-made examples of any style and can appreciate that in the right context. Uh, One of the really fun things with Bean to Bar chocolate, similar to what we see in beer, is that you have both the classic way that things are done, which in the case with chocolate, that would be your, you know, just cacao and sugar or cacao sugar and um and milk and and cacao butter where you know you're just doing like your single origins and things like that but then you also have what we call inclusion bars which are where chocolate makers can bring in any weird ingredient they want you know coffee fruits botanicals spices breakfast cereal whatever they want and add it to their chocolate bar much like we see on the craft beer side where you have your classic styles but then you also have brewers just throwing all kinds of different stuff into beers and just experimenting with it. So I can enjoy any well-made chocolate. I think there are a lot of fascinating things happening on the inclusion side with chocolate makers just kind of treating chocolate as a uh, blank canvas and figuring out almost like a chef, like figuring out how different other ingredients are going to come in and interact and creating just really singular flavor experiences. As you kind of touched on before, people always kind of associate chocolate with wine more so than beer. Do you think that's changing? 
Because really, the two, chocolate and wine, like, don't really go together. They do a little, but but as a general whole, like, they really don't. They certainly can. And I think there are some professionals who are doing cool things with pairing wine and chocolate. But they're pairing wine with anything, and I say this with all the respect in the world for wine, wine has a narrower flavor band than beer does. Doesn't mean it is less complex as a beverage, doesn't mean it's not as good, but it is it is a narrower range of possible flavor expressions uh, relative to beer. So when you're looking at pairing with anything, cheese, chocolate, you are working with a slightly smaller toolbox when it comes to figuring out what you can reach out with. So there are some fantastic wine and chocolate pairings. It just, you might struggle more from a versatility standpoint where beer has so, so much variety. And it's one of the things that I think can actually limit people sometimes from getting into beer because there's just so much overwhelming variety that it's hard to make sense of of what's what. But from a standpoint of pairing, once you have a handle on those styles, uh, you have almost unlimited resources for coming up with those pairings. So um, I think that is a a real benefit for beer. And uh, I would say that while there is a beer for every chocolate, there is not necessarily a chocolate for every beer. There are some beer styles that do struggle, but um, I've had a, a blast pairing them together. So as you mentioned, kind of August 2020 is when you released the first episode of your podcast, Being a Barstool. What led you to get involved with podcasting because you know you wrote this 70 page you know guidebook handbook thing with pairing beer and chocolate so why kind of shift into the podcast space podcast medium well the podcast came first i started the podcast and then released the guide last year um once i kind of had a platform from the podcast but one part of it was circumstantial you know this was 2020 we were all sitting at home i wasn't out doing events i had thought about the idea of coming up with a media platform for bringing together beer and chocolate and suddenly i had time and people were home and they didn't have anything to do so it provided a really good opportunity both from a availability standpoint for me and also you had a lot of bored people who were looking for ways to learn about new interests and things and it was a good time to be doing that i wanted to have some kind of independent platform for talking about this when you're a freelancer you kind of don't have a home base you know you you're not the columnist for this place you're writing stories for all sorts of different places and so if you're trying to build your own platform you have social media which by 2020 was it's getting pretty hard to actually build a platform that way unless you're going to throw a lot of money at it Uh, so i wanted something that was kind of a home base to direct people back to like yeah i'm writing this article about this learn more by going back to beingabarstool.com and the podcast felt like a really natural way to do that um get get guests together and and talk about something that doesn't often get put together for people you know bring on a a chocolate maker who's providing cacao for this brewer and get them both on and get both sides of that story of how that collaboration happened and uh, it's just an easy medium for that i think what's been the biggest challenge with doing the podcast for you now that you're in kind of year three i would say two things one is time it just takes a lot of time from a standpoint of doing the interviews to editing if you're going to do some basic editing to make it sound better, you know, like that takes more time than the interview did. The time when, because I have not directly monetized the podcast, this is something that I am doing work time. I'm spending work time on this and not actually directly getting paid for it. 
it's just hopefully building this platform and, and gaining visibility. And then the other side of that is audience. You know how this is, like getting more people to listen to your show, when, especially when you feel like you're doing great work and it's like more people should be listening to this. Why aren't they listening to this? Where is everybody? <laughs> that can get frustrating and discouraging. The, the show is growing, but I think that that's something that any podcaster deals with of just like more people should be listening to this. How do I get people to listen to this over and over again in my head? Yeah, there's no one right method. The thing I kind of always tell myself too is like, if even if you have somebody that really loves podcasts, like really loves listening to podcasts, and let's say they're back in the office and they listen to podcasts six hours of their day, they're probably that's six episodes, maybe. So six different shows if they're all an hour long, multiply that by five, that's 30. So like you're trying to compete to be one of their 30 things in their rotation that they're gonna listen to. And that's like a high consumer of podcasts. So yeah, it's it's really, the market's pretty saturated with a lot of podcasts that started in 2020 because people had just time on their hands and didn't know what to do. But a lot of those, I think some of the data says a lot of that stuff is has kind of fallen off. People stopped doing it, going back to work, didn't grow as fast as they wanted. All that kind of stuff falls into place. So I guess it's back to a little bit more manageable level, but then there's Nothing ever gets removed from any directories. So it's like there's still, you know, millions of podcasts out there. But even if the feed hasn't been updated in like two years, like it'd still be sitting there active. So it's kind of weird. Well, I think the other tricky thing with it is that, you know, obviously my show is pretty niche. It's it's just beer and chocolate. And on the one hand, that's a selling point. Like it needs to be niche, it needs to stand out, it needs to be unique. But that also limits a little bit of like who is going to even give this a try for the first time to see that they like it, where I could step back and be a little bit more broad or be a little bit more approachable, probably have a lower barrier to entry, but also have a lower ceiling because there's so many of those, you know, there's so, like, how many shows do we need that are just talking about beer? It's kind of a balancing point there of being niche, but also being not being so niche that people look at it and are like, eh, I don't, I don't think that's for me. People all the time, they're like, you know, like you kind of mentioned with, you know, getting the certifications, like, and you are some guy who doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are about it. Like you're competing against every major sports network that has their own internal stuff. Then you have people that have built their own thing for a number of years that are like kind of the go-to outside of the industry people. Like you're competing with such just a big market thing that has just hundreds of millions of dollars that have dumped into the overall thing. Good luck. Like, hopefully it works out, but odds are odds are not in your favor for that. Well, and what's frustrating with that is that like probably one of those in the hundreds or thousands of people trying to, one of them is probably awesome and is never going to get that audience because of that problem. Like one of those is probably genuinely a great idea and great execution, and it will wallow in anonymity because it can never break through. So with your podcast, did it take you long to get kind of comfortable with the process and being behind the mic, or was it kind of a natural, pretty quick progression just from doing the same outlines with, you know, writing and everything kind of too? Yeah, I would say from a comfort level, it was pretty quick. The one thing about being a barstool that makes that a little easier is it's a scripted narration. Obviously, interviews are free form, but I'm not just, hey, everybody. So today we're going to, you know, and, and 
spitballing like that. So it's scripted. So that's a little bit easier. Uh, take some of that pressure off. One thing that I was doing early on that I have, I do occasionally, but have stepped back from now is I was making them very edited from a segment standpoint where I was trying to do almost more like a This American Life type format where it's like five minutes on this topic with this person. And okay, now we're going to jump over and follow up with this and like doing all these different little interviews and lots of narration to piece it all together. And it was, I think that it, I mean, I think the episodes were fine, but it was needlessly complex from a work standpoint. And I have now stepped much more back to a more conventional introduce my guest here's the interview with the guest. Here's the outro at the end. Um, I will from time to time do a little bit bigger show where I'll have, you know, multiple guests and do a little bit of editing there and do a little, you know, uh, structuring of that. But I have tried to streamline the process for myself as much as I can because of limited time. And I don't think the audience suffers for that. I think it was something more I was enjoying doing early on and it wasn't necessarily creating a better product. It takes a little while to kind of find what exactly you want quote unquote format to be. And the less you box yourself into probably the better and easier it is from all aspects. But you're up to, I think, 64 episodes, not including some bonus episodes that you did. And then there's also like bite-sized episodes that you've done too. You kind of release not weekly, but it's like three times a month, I feel like kind of on average, right? So full-length episodes are every other Tuesday, and then some intervening Tuesdays I have bonus content and some I don't. So yeah, it, it probably ends up being about three a month, but they're always Tuesdays. With all that, what kind of keeps you motivated to keep doing it? Because like you said, there's no monetary gain from it for you. You know, It's a place that points people to some of your other work that you're doing, but why and how do you keep kind of pushing out new episodes? Well, I think it's still serving the purpose that I intended for it of providing that platform and kind of establishing me as a voice on a particular topic. And while I haven't directly monetized the podcast, the podcast has built an audience to which I can now sell zines and and things like that um, has worked for, you know, I will tie that in with events when I'm doing beer and chocolate pairings like that. Um, so I think it's still accomplishing that. But honestly, just from an interest standpoint, I this is I haven't exhausted this topic. Like it, there is so much rich overlap between beer and chocolate and the way that ingredients get used and unique collaborations that I haven't seen before. And um, there's still material there to be to be delved into, and people are still responding to it. So uh, I will continue to do that for as long as that um, stays beneficial for me, and as long as I stay interested in it. Do you have a dream guest, like a, a white whale, you know, that person that more than likely, you know, you got like 100 to one shot, like they'll come on the podcast. But if you ever got them, that'd be like. I don't think so, because the great thing about beer and chocolate is that there's accessibility. Like I have interviewed the biggest names in beer, not all for the podcast, but I have been able to sit here on Zoom with, you know, Ken Grossman, who founded Sierra Nevada and. Uh, Lauren Woods Limbach from New Belgium. Actually, she was on the show. And craft chocolate is such a small and new industry that you don't really have those celebrities. So I can kind of get who I want on the show, which I don't say that as a, a big brag as much as that those industries have a lot of accessibility. And it's one of the great things about them is that you can, you know, obviously probably need a little bit of um, professional credential, but I mean, you can kind of reach out to who you want to talk to and and get access to do that. So it's it's a 
really nice benefit for doing a show about beer and chocolate is I can get the names that people are wanting to interact with. So with doing kind of the beer events and stuff that you've done, I still have not found anybody who does this, but there's a famous kind of quip from uh, Jim Coke, who's the founder of Sam Adams. And he said, because sometimes he would have to do these long days with sampling different beers and doing these events and stuff. He would take active yeast and mix it with yogurt. And he would eat that before doing any of these long events. That way there's some sort of chemical reaction to with the beer. Essentially it prevents him from getting drunk really quickly. And he's able to drink more over a longer period because of something breaking down kind of like the alcohol or enzymes or whatever. Have you ever tried this? Have you ever heard of this? I have not done that. There is a company called Zbiotics that just in the last year released a probiotic uh, with a culture that breaks down acetaldehyde. So in the body, ethanol gets broken down into a few different things. One of them is acetaldehyde. If you drink too much and are doing liver damage, acetaldehyde, the product of ethanol is actually what is causing that. Uh, it's significantly more toxic than ethanol itself is. Um, and there is a lot of suspicion that acetaldehyde is also what is creating hangover symptoms a lot of the time. Uh, so this company has created a probiotic that breaks down acetaldehyde in the gut. Um, I have some questions about that from a physiological standpoint, uh, because ethanol gets broken into acetaldehyde in a couple of different places. One place is in the uh, digestive tract, but once ethanol it goes into the bloodstream, it gets filtered out through the liver where enzymes break that ethanol down into acetaldehyde. So the liver kind of creates its own poison. That probiotic is only addressing the ethanol that is in your intestines. It doesn't actually impact anything that has gotten into your bloodstream already. So um, I have tried that just to see if I notice a, a difference. I, I don't drink that heavily. So I really can't say that I've noticed a lot. Uh, people have different little cures like like Jim shared, you know, little little rituals that maybe um, help you mentally more than they actually like pan out from a science standpoint. But I am waiting on a company to come up with a a probably a probiotic that would actually break down uh, ethanol and acetaldehyde together before it enters the bloodstream. Um, there are a couple companies that have claimed to have something that will do that, but there's like no actual research that has been published. It's just like claims. Uh, I would love it. I would welcome it. I don't need to get drunk. I want to be able to enjoy these beverages. I don't need. I don't need to get uh, buzzed drinking them, and I would enjoy not having to worry about any health risks with it. So that comes along and be awesome, but uh, there's no perfect cure for that right now. I would love to talk to Jim about that. I don't, I mean, anything that was going to do that has to do something before it gets in your bloodstream. And that's like, that's almost impossible. Like it would have to break down the ethanol, then break down the acetaldehyde and do both of those before they actually crossed into your bloodstream. And that feels like a pretty big ask. You're based out of Dayton, Ohio. Have you done the Dayton Ale Trail? Is that something that you've partake in? I haven't done it as an actual, like I haven't gotten the little book and the stamps. I've been to all of our breweries, but uh, no, I haven't done that as like an actual, I'm going to this year go around and get all my stamps or anything. Is that growing? Does that help with the beer scene? You know, cause we have it here in Columbus and it's, I don't even know what it's, it's gotta be up to 50 or 60 breweries. I think by probably by now, I think they even separated some stuff that's 
outside of the outer belt that's not like required but you could do it kind of thing and they're still involved somehow but is it bringing more people to discover the the breweries in dayton or is it just not really had too much effect I haven't seen specific numbers. My guess is that it might do a little bit, at least from a, the completionism of it probably gets people to a few breweries they wouldn't have otherwise. But I think the subset of people who are actually going out of their way to complete that is relatively small. Uh, I think if they're helping anywhere, if if those types of things are getting people to breweries, cool. My guess is that as we go forward in the next five or 10 years, we will probably not see those as much as the beer industry continues to mature, as people, um, as you know, beer is no longer the new thing now, and and that will continue to uh, change. And so, as people's relationship to craft beer changes, I think that the idea of the novelty of just I made it to all these places will cease to have quite the draw, and it'll become more about where are the places that I actually like, where are the places I want to spend time, where are the places that have other things going on beyond just uh, recreational drinking. Um, I think that's going to be more of the draw going forward. So I I haven't seen specific numbers, so I don't want to make any actual claims there, but my guess is it's probably a relatively small impact. With the Columbus one, I mean, I did it three, four, five years ago, something like that. Uh, I think it was right before the pandemic and everything. And you have to drink a lot of beer that you're not going to like. Well, and like, it's like the bonus is always like a t-shirt or a growler of beer. And it's like, I, you know, I can just buy a t-shirt. I, I don't want to go to places I don't actually want to be and drink beer. I don't want to drink so that I can get this t-shirt or this growler fill or whatever the actual prize is. Yeah. I mainly did it just for motivation to finally get to some breweries that either I had never been to or never tried just to see if it was something that they were doing was something that I would, you know, like, or really enjoy and kind of include in your core places that you get a beer from kind of thing. So with kind of breweries, Dayton's got a bunch, you got Cincinnati, Columbus, and then obviously Cleveland, if you go up a bit farther, looking at kind of the state of Ohio and those markets, do you think we're at kind of the point of market saturation for independent breweries or is there still room, but Anybody coming into that world now really has to bring something different to the marketplace. Otherwise, they're just going to kind of blend in with half of everybody else. I think this is the question that's facing the entire industry right now. Craft beer is not really growing in the same way that it was just a few years ago. Volume figures are are kind of static and uh, we aren't seeing the same kind of enthusiasm around craft beer as it being like this hip new cool thing that we're gonna we're gonna go do um so i don't think we're at a saturation point from the standpoint of like okay we've reached everybody that might be a craft beer fan and where they can't handle any more craft beer like there we could certainly always get the market to grow more but the idea of just sort of this like wild west bonanza of like Dude, if you can get a business plan in place and open a brewery, you've got money, at least for a few years. Like people are going to come in. That's over. That's just done. So I think it is much more about, um, first of all, not just being a brewery, figuring out what you are actually offering to a community beyond just Weber beer. So is that a meaningful hospitality space where people actually want to spend time? Is that food? Is that uh, you're going to be the local concert venue, you know, like you have to have an actual value proposition that you are bringing that is people are going to come in for more than just the fact that they want to try your latest beer. 
Um, and I think more and more quality is going to have to be there. That wasn't always a requirement. There is so much bad beer out there and there has been for a while because A, you have a public who maybe doesn't know if a beer has a flaw or if if uh, this is a good example of a style or not, but also uh, people just wanted beer. The, 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 the fact that a brewery is opening was exciting and quality was secondary to that. Uh, and there are so many breweries out there that have been brewing bad beer. And I think we're going to see closures. Uh, I was talking with somebody recently and it sounds really bad, but like if we could pick the closures, if you could weed out breweries that were not great, uh, you know, obviously removing the human element and people losing their jobs, like I don't think that actually hurts the industry that much, like weeding some of that out. The problem is that that won't be how that happens. It's going to be economic decisions and it's going to be good breweries and bad breweries closing and good breweries and bad breweries staying open at least for a little while. So, um, but I think as far as new breweries coming in, that quality is going to have to be there. The value proposition beyond beer itself is going to have to be there in order to justify the business. Is like the merger and acquisition stuff probably near or at the end of its cycle? Like Anheuser-Busch bought, I think, Platform Sam Adams and I think it was a dogfish head kind of merged mostly for distribution purposes, I believe. But are there still going to be the big corporate domestic companies purchasing kind of these mid-tier popular independent breweries or is that kind of subsided in the industry for now? What it looks like is going to change. So we're not going to see Anheuser-Busch buying your local brewery. Because going back to what I was saying, like craft beer is not that sexy new thing anymore. And these big breweries don't need to have a uh, credentialed, you know, like uh, hip brewery in every area of the country. What we are going to see is more regional level. So, um, you know, either statewide or Midwest or, you know, just like regional breweries that are suddenly struggling with beer sitting on shelves and can't move volume, but have uh, debt that they can't, you know, cover with with that drop in volume, that are now going to need money. So whether that means getting bought by a larger craft brewery, merging together, looking for venture capital, uh, or selling to a probably not an Anheuser Busch, but another you know larger brewery like that, I think we are going to see a lot more of that. Um, I think we will see more large local sized breweries that merge together um, to to try to join forces. I, we're not, I think the beer market from a back end standpoint, and I don't know how much of this will be visible to the consumer is going to change a lot in the next five to 10 years. And that is going to mean mergers and acquisitions, but it's probably not going to be those huge, like asteroid type uh, events like oh my God, Anheuser-Busch bought Goose Island. Like we're not going to see that kind of thing. There's going to be a lot though that the public probably doesn't even notice is happening on the back end where where ownership is changing hands or combining. One thing that did happen, I think last week, was it Anchor Brewing out in San Francisco? They announced that they were closing. They've been open like 127 years or something like that. Was there a specific reason? 
the company had been open 127 years. The more notable thing from a, from the, the craft industry standpoint is that it had been bought in the 1960s by Fritz Maytag, and it's widely considered to be like the first modern craft brewery when he bought it. It was on its last legs. It was about to go out of business. The beer was not good. He was just, he was the heir of the Maytag appliance uh, fortune and was apparently just bored after college and bought this brewery. He went in to tour it before it closed, found it fascinating, bought 51% of the brewery the next day. So uh, he so he was kind of that first, like, you know what? I'm just going to try to make a go of it with a small brewery story. And um, the brewery sold, uh, I, I don't remember the exact year, about 10 years ago to a spirits uh, company and then sold to Sapporo out of Japan four or five years ago. Sapporo promised that they uh, were going to preserve the legacy of the brewery. By all accounts, kind of bungled that a little bit, mismanaged some stuff with Anchor. Uh, they went through a massive rebrand a couple years ago that was a disaster. It didn't look good, and it erased all the historical elements that had made it charming in the first place. That did not work out. About a month ago, they announced that they were going to uh, discontinue one of the most popular beers, which was their Christmas beer, and um, or I should say most beloved Popularity probably did not pan out from a, a sales standpoint at this point, but uh, and they were going to pull back distribution from nationally to California only because 70% of their sales were in California. Everybody was like, okay, like maybe that was time. You know, maybe it was time for them to, everybody is looking at changing their distribution. National distribution is not necessarily a, a goal anymore, like local and regional distribution. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe Anchor has a point doing this in California. And then they just, announced they were closing. And um, the story that is being spun right now, and I think that it is very actively being spun by Sapporo, is that uh, it was just a change in the market and the money wasn't there and we can't justify this place being open anymore. The stories coming out from workers, and a lot of this has been broken by uh, my colleague, Dave Infante, who writes for Vine Pair and runs the Fingers newsletter. Um, the the stories coming out is that this was mismanagement that the the company did not um, understand what anchor was and what it was going to need and just kind of um, took it out behind the shed and shot it and didn't give it the the chance it should have had. So it's um, it's really sad. You know, it's our first modern craft brewery. Anchor Steam was a lot of people's first craft beer. Uh, their Christmas ale is always one of my favorite seasonal beers every year. They would change the recipe a little bit every year and do a different label and it, like so people would collect the bottles and a lot of history there a lot of story but it's gone unless somebody you know sweeps in at the last minute and buys it before they they shut down but do you have a beer style or region that you kind of gravitate towards uh, whether it's belgium or christmas ales or, or anything Belgium actually is one that I really love. My wife and I have been to Belgium a couple of times. We'll be back there in the fall. Uh, I think Belgium has a really fascinating how uh, beers of Belgium are very, very unique because they are driven by their fermentation character, um, not just hops and malt. So fermentation and, and really characterful ale yeast will lead to some really unusual beers. Belgian brewers are not really all that style beholden. They don't uh, sweat style guidelines that much. They'll just brew beers that kind of sit out on their own and don't fit into a clean style. Um, so I really, really enjoy Belgian ales. Uh, and then with the stuff I'm doing with being a bar stool, I, I 
really am interested in brewers who are working with ethically sourced cacao uh, in thoughtful ways uh, to use that, recognize that as an agricultural and botanical ingredient and not just chocolate as a, you know, Halloween treat, uh, but actually recognizing this as a legitimate agricultural ingredient and using it in thoughtful ways. You just recently started a quarterly magazine, right? Final Gravity. What does that entail? What's kind of your goal with that? Yeah, so we just published issue one of Final Gravity in June, and actually the pre-order for issue two went up today. That'll come out in September. It is a zine, uh, so it is a like handmade, staple-bound, home-printed zine rather than like a glossy magazine. Um, and it the goal with it is to tell really immersive, personal stories from within beer. So rather than industry coverage, trends coverage style uh, descriptions, you know, things like that. It is people who work within beer just telling really interesting stories from that. So we we do uh, freelance writers who pitch us stories, but we also publish articles from folks who work in the industry, brewers, bartenders, owners who just want to write about some aspect of their experience. Uh, so we have an article in issue two from a brewery owner who also does roller derby. And her whole story is going to be about, it's, it's basically like a, a diary of the day of one of her roller derby bouts. And she's just like talking about what it is. So like, it's not even really a focused on beer. It's just, she works in beer and this is something else creative that she does. And she's sharing that. So we really want to kind of show that, uh, with tens of thousands of brewery employees around the country, you know, beer is a microcosm of the entire country. You know, we have people of all identities, uh, all ages, genders, races, creeds, orientations, whatever, working within beer. And they're doing really, really interesting things, both in beer and outside of it. And so looking at it beyond just that older style of beer writing of uh, let's learn more about Municalis today, which is perfectly legitimate. Um, we're looking at like Tell us who you are, you know, share something about who that your local brewer is about um, if there's a brewery doing something really unusual that probably doesn't justify an article. Let's drill down really, really close on that and see what this brewery is doing. We've got an article in issue two about a brewery that is doing a weekly Dungeons and Dragons clubs. Uh, so they like one night a week, they do tabletop stuff and they've got you know their dungeon master and they're doing like all the role playing stuff and it's just going to like drill in on that one particular aspect of what this brewery is doing and you know it's just something that pops up on their facebook events otherwise it doesn't get any coverage but like that's really cool and there's probably like a very legitimate community that has sprung up around doing that every week and people who are going to that are looking forward to it all week and uh that's cool let's let's share it so that's kind of the goal with it is telling really personal, really immersive stories from beer um, as an alternative to there's a lot of great publications out there that are writing about beer in that more conventional way. And I write for them and I love them. Um, but this is kind of an avenue for stories that aren't finding homes in those places. Will you write for Final Gravity too as well? Or are you just kind of in the the editing, creative kind of organizational behind the scenes aspect for it? My wife, Melinda Guerra, and I founded uh, Final Gravity, and we are the co-editors, and we both write one story for each issue. So I'll have one article in each issue. What's next for you professionally? I mean, you got the podcast, Final Gravity. The second issue is going to be coming up uh, in September. Still doing, obviously, writing for different magazines and everything, but anything else on the horizons for you? 
pending availability in my schedule, I would actually like to launch a zine for Bean to Bar Chocolate as well. There is currently no publication devoted to craft chocolate. There was one a couple of years ago that a uh, beautiful publication out of the UK called Cacao Mag. They had, I think, three or four issues and then had to um, shut down. And now there's nothing. So I would love to be able to provide a home for writing about being a bar of chocolate. The issue right now is time. I mean, I sat down this past weekend and kind of did an audit of all of my time, wrote down like every single job task that I do, all of the projects that I do. And I'm like, I... I am right now, like I'm a highly organized, highly efficient person, and I am like saturated in my time. And it's like, I've got to now go through and be like, this is a worthwhile thing, but it's the one that has to go and like start crossing things off from that list. So that's going to depend on whether or not I can justify that in my time without um, without slipping on, on other tasks. But I, that would be what I would like to tackle next. So we've got a handful of more questions left. Uh, these we kind of asked everybody who comes on the podcast. But first questions was left behind from Somalia Jessica Waugh of JY Education uh, out in Las Vegas, Nevada is where she's based. But she left behind for you. What is your advice for finding balance in your career while still staying on top of your craft? That can be particularly difficult when you're freelancing, especially if you're working from home like I am, because there there literally is no division between your life and your work. Like I'm sitting in our, my office is in one half of our family room. So this is also where I watch movies with my kid and uh, it just, just happens to be where I work. So there, it can be difficult to draw firm boundaries. My wife also does some freelancing work. And so we will sometimes, if we have too much going on, be like, you know what, tonight, put on a couple movies and get out our laptops and we'll just kind of like work at a slow pace and get some things done. And we're still spending time together, but uh, we're also accomplishing some administrative tasks that would just take up time on a work day and aren't necessarily creative. Um, so doing that is one way we're like, we're still relaxing and still spending time together, but also getting work done. But beyond that, I mean, I think organization is key. I think having, when you are freelancing, you have so many details just flying around you, like just so many deadlines and tiny little tasks and things and being organized so that you can actually look at it and say, yes, then this can get done during my workday. And then I can close my laptop and be done tonight, I think is absolutely essential. So organization, being intentional with the times that you are going to set aside to work and the times that you are going to respect your own boundaries and not work is really, really important. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. If you found out tomorrow that your career was just suddenly no longer viable, you couldn't keep doing it, and you had the opportunity to go into anything else realistically, you're not going to become an astronaut, but like you could go into another career, what would you take the opportunity to pivot to? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could be a guest brewmaster, guest brewer, for any beer with any brewery and have your name on it as a co-brewer of it, which brewery would it be and what style of beer would you pick? I think I would love to go down to Burial Brewing in Asheville, North Carolina and work with them on one of their really high concept pastry stouts. They make these really strong imperial stouts where they will use really come at it from a very culinary standpoint and use a lot of different ingredients in really thoughtful ways so not they're not trying to recreate a particular candy bar or a particular dessert but they are using like 
raisins soaked in sherry with Brazil nuts, with, you know, cacao husks, with like, like all these different things to create a finished flavor concept. And I've interviewed them and talked to them about it. And I think it's really interesting, but I have, I would love to be there and be involved in the actual process of taking all of these disparate parts and all of the different ways that things could go wrong and actually balancing that process and seeing like, how do these parts go together to get a finished, clean, finished concept where a person's going to taste it and thinks it, think it's delicious, but not even have to like think about all the work that went into it. Um, because so much thought was put into it on the front end and so much expertise. So I think I would like to be involved in one of those brew days. So we got a few questions left. These we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast. Had to tweak yours a little bit because uh, usually they're kind of more wine focused. So we just tweaked them a little bit for, for the beer and chocolate aspect. But who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? Probably London Co. has had a huge influence. The chocolate educator who got me into craft chocolate because while more of my time is devoted to beer, she was my entire gateway into chocolate and uh, gave me my first opportunity to really bring the two together. She hosted an event several years back called Learn, Love, Eat, uh, where she brought in experts in different fields and had them speak about you know, wine, spirits, tea, coffee, beer, and brought me in to talk about beer. And the entire idea behind that was not just talking about your your area of expertise from a technical standpoint or leading a tasting, but like really getting into like the, why does this matter? How does this connect to other aspects of who we are? Like, why is the tasting experience important? Gave me like a, a stage basically to talk about flavor in the way that I have tried to transition to doing with being the barstool with, with my writing of the last few years of looking at the ways that our senses interact with who we are and you know, our memories and our emotions and things like that. So I think that without, it would have taken a lot longer for me to have an opportunity to pivot in that direction. And I think that that has been a huge impact. What's your desert island beer? There are so many. I, I guess I won't overthink it. Um, Bell's too hard at Bucket list travel destination, bucket list brewery, and then also bucket list chocolate manufacturer. Like Place you have not been to, but you do want to get to one day and see their operation, see what they got going on. Destination, uh, I actually think I get to check off this fall. My wife and I are heading to Europe, and I'm specifically excited about going to Franconia in southern Germany. They have a uh, robust, rustic lager brewing culture and drinking culture, you know, beer gardens and places that bring the community together, and people are just drinking really beautiful beer and, and hanging out, and I am Really, really excited about that. That's been on my list for a long time, and I will finally get to go this fall. Um, specific brewery is really, really tough. I think probably Orval, which is a Trappist brewery at a monastery in Belgium. Uh, they only produce two beers, only one of which gets distributed here in the United States, just called Orval Trappist Ale. Uh, the, the monastery has been there for centuries. It was destroyed during the French Revolution and then rebuilt, but the, the ruins of the original one are still there. And I would love to go there, um, see the place that this singular beer that just, there's nothing else like it, uh, see what where that came comes from. Switch it slightly and say not a maker, but I would love to go to a cacao origin. Uh, I have not been able to go to a cacao growing region and actually get to a farm, see cacao being grown, see how the fermentation process works in person. So 
I would love to do that. We are talking about the possibility next year of going to either Brazil or Mexico. So in either one of those, um, we'll hopefully have the opportunity to do that. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that, you know, is kind of unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. So once a week, my, my wife and daughter and I do a movie night. And since my daughter was very, very young, we've done a rotating, the person who picks the movie and the person who picks the food rotates every week. So every, every family member gets a chance to pick it. And so when she was really young, that was always McDonald's or something. Uh, but like we will still occasionally incorporate fast food into that. And it has kind of a nostalgia to it now because we've been doing that for so long. So there is right down the road from me here i actually live in a small town called greenville just north of dayton and right down the road from us there is a sandwich shop called made right uh it's founded in 1934 so they've been there 90 years and they do like a loose meat sandwich people come from hours around just to get this sandwich and it is um it's the kind of thing where like you have to understand the sort of cachet around it to understand the sandwich because it's just a very basic loose meat sandwich on a bun like there's nothing groundbreaking about it but they're like 250 or something a piece and you buy like three of them and uh so made right sandwich and they have a, a killer peanut butter shake so a made right and a peanut butter shake would be my guilty pleasure beer recommendations so we're gonna kind of tweak this category here so just sticking with ohio so a brewery out of dayton uh, you'd recommend people should check out for whatever qualifier you want to use whether it's a great beer cool story cool environment whatever but dayton one from Dayton, one from Cincinnati, one from Columbus, one from Cleveland, and then kind of a, a fifth one, a wild card that's outside of those four cities. So kind of five places in Ohio that that you think people should check out right now. Uh, in Dayton, I'm going to go a little bit unusual and pick Carillon Brewing. Uh, they are the only brewery in the country that is on the grounds of a museum. Um, they are a recreation 1850 brewery. So they use equipment and techniques from 1850 for all of their beer. So their entire brewing system is wood fired, gravity fed, um, open fermented, and they're producing some pretty amazing beers on a very, very rustic system. It's all in a recreation 1850, uh, like brewery barn basically. And, the uh, um, the brewers are trained historians. They're all in period dress. So it's like this very immersive experience, but the beer is really, really good. And they have an amazing beer garden out back with these like 150-year-old uh, sycamores providing shade. And it's there is not another brewery like it in the country. It's completely unlike anything. And I would definitely recommend people check that out here in Dayton. <clears throat> in Cincinnati, I would recommend Esoteric Brewing. They're in the Walnut Hills neighborhood. Um, they are, I actually wrote about them in Final Gravity issue one. Um, they're really taking a unique taproom concept and going away from the typical beer hall with long tables and lots of noise type of thing. And they're like really making it much more of like a sleek lounge, but not in a, a pretentious way. Like they want it to be a community gathering place and like people feel comfortable and just really comfortable seating, really like you have separate isolated areas so there's like noise protection and um and the beer is fantastic so really love what they're doing uh columbus i'm gonna go with um i'm gonna go with one that a lot of people would probably already pick and say seventh sun i think seventh sun is making just fantastic beer and i think they're making really intelligent decisions with the way they build out their business with creating 
separate tap rooms with separate concepts rather than just satellites to their main concept, the, their main tap room. You know, they've got the getaway, they've got antiques on high. All of those are unique experiences, and um, and their beer is uniformly excellent. Cleveland, I will go with Noble Beast. Uh, they are a relatively small brewery. Uh, the founder is a, the former brewer at platform and then he founded noble beast and they are making some of the everything they make is excellent they're making some of the best classic lagers in the country i would say um and really good ipas uh they make a baltic porter that they have that has meddled at the great american beer festival i think twice now uh, which is kind of a rare style that nobody brews but they brew it really really well uh and it's a really lovely tap room they have a lot of greenery um a skylight overhead so it's got nice natural light just a really comfortable space and then my freebie will be woolly pig farm brewery from fresno uh, about an hour east of columbus out in the middle of nowhere just in like rolling hills they have an active um pig farm raising mangalitsa pigs and they have almost an entirely closed waste system. So all of their brewery waste goes to the pigs and then they uh, they butcher and sell the meat there at the brewery. So they are trying to have like as low an ecological impact as they can, brewing amazing beer. Um, they were actually inspired to create the brewery uh, after visiting Franconia in Southern Germany, where I mentioned that I'll be going uh, because there were a lot of breweries there where they were on farms and were, you know, just feeding brewery waste directly to uh, pigs and, and livestock. So they are doing that on this really lovely rolling, partially wooded property. And it's, uh, there's tons of room and families just come out for the afternoon and the kids play in the grass and the parents you know, drink really great beer. And it's just a, a really cool atmosphere. You can see the pigs and Go and say hello to them. Um, it's just a really cool space. I think everybody should check that out. So those will be, that'll be my wild card pick. What is one book focused on beverage or beer that you think everybody should read? Hmm. I'm going to not over, well, after sitting here and thinking about that, I'm going to not overthink it. Uh, I actually had a friend who just came out with a book a week or two ago. Uh, Mandy Naglich has a book out called How to Taste. She is an advanced Cicerone. She's also certified in spirits. And I feel like she has multiple certifications in tasting, but it is a kind of just an introduction to like, like it's somewhat agnostic from like a specific food or beverage standpoint, just like how in general does the human body taste and how do we interact with uh, what we taste? So she interviewed experts in tons and tons of different fields, you know, chocolate, cheese, bourbon, wine, coffee, all sorts of different things and got like their secrets of what is unique to your segment and then what from from your segment is universal and put that all together in a really fun way it's got a lot of like has a lot of those little facts that you like want to trout out at a party later on to be like hey did you know that such and such like she does a lot of that fun stuff um and that just came out like a week or two ago so i would encourage people to check that out i'm an anthony bourdain fan but not everybody is or was if you were is there a moment episode or scene that stands out to you about him still, or if you weren't, is there anybody else who's on TV? Um, whether it was some sort of travel TV show or cooking show, Emerald, Julia Child, somebody of that kind of persona and nature that you kind of always paid attention to and maybe gravitated towards when you're getting into your beer career? Yeah, you know, I'll stick with Bourdain. It's kind of a throwaway moment, but he has one particular episode of, I think it was Parts Unknown, where he is in the Philippines 
And much of the emphasis of the episode is on uh, the cover bands in the Philippines and just talking about like these cover bands who have to learn so many different songs and so many different genres and play them perfectly. Uh, so that was kind of fun. But there's this moment where he is sitting there with uh, you know, a group of of locals and the camera, like he's, he, he's not mic'd. I think there's some voiceover happening and you're, I'm just, you're just seeing him sitting there with these people and he just looks happy. He's looking around him. He's looking at these different faces, obviously knows he's on camera, but like, he's not, he's not presenting or speaking in that moment. And he's just a spectator of the world, which is what he wanted to be and was what he was at his best. And, you know, taking that, what he was seeing and, and translating it for other people. And like, he just sitting there and he just looks happy. And I, I feel like that image has always stuck with me of like, this is what this guy did so beautifully and wish he could have done for a lot longer. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Sure. So you can find me at davidnilsonbeer.com. I can get links to all of my published articles and upcoming events there and also sign up for my newsletter. You can go to beanedbarstool.com to find the podcast, which is also on all major podcast platforms. That's also where the shop is, where you can order Final Gravity and the other zines and things. Uh, and then you can find me on the major social platforms at David Nilsson Beer and at Barstool. On Instagram, do you still use the Twitter? I do, but I have been slowly paring back. I'm not using it for much anymore. Basically, it's just like when I have like an announcement, I will put it out, but I'm not actually using it on a personal level much. This was awesome. I listened to the podcast. Uh, I'm a fan. It's, it's you know, we've had a chocolatier on from Miami um, who does bean the bar stuff, Esquisito, with, uh, Carolina there. And we've had, I think, one or two beer professionals on. Like you said, it's cool unique concept there's nothing else really out there like it and you just kind of get to hear some cool stories and and kind of learn a few things it's just something different so even if you you enjoy you know food and wine and all that stuff it's still attached to that but it's just different in its own way kind of stands alone too which is which is cool and that's kind of what everybody i think aims for so but yeah definitely uh, check out those episodes and yeah, it was a pleasure having you on and uh, always, you know, stay in touch. If you need anything from us, uh, let us know, but we'll be checking out the, the new zine that you released. That seems to be going pretty well. And um, yeah, looking forward to issue two. All right. Well, thank you, Ray. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Big thanks again to David for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his busy schedule to jump on talk about his career and how he got into beer, how he founded the podcast, what he's got going on with it, why he started the magazine, all that stuff. So Again, you can follow him on Instagram at David Nilsson Beer. You can also follow the magazine. It's at Final Gravity Zine. And then also the podcast is at Bean to Barstool. You can find the podcast on any podcast platform. You can find ours there too as well. Just search Bean to Barstool should come up. If you search Spoon Mob, we should come up. Pretty easy to find. Click the follow button. All new episodes drop straight into your player there. So you guys don't have to search for every individual episode. Check out his website too as well. Bean to Barstool kind of links to all the different stuff that he's got going on. Our website kind of does the same. SpoonMob.com. Uh, we have different pages for all of our guests and keep running list updates, different photos incorporated, all that good stuff. So check all that stuff out. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. It's not something that we get to do too, too much with having somebody else who has some podcast background and and podcast experience. I think Jamie Ma was the only other one that we've had on. I get the chance sometimes to go on other people's podcasts, and that's always a blast for me just because I don't have to do anything but show up and talk. It's just a completely different thing where you're not having to do any of the editing or, or any of kind of the post-production or 
any of the pre-production stuff. You just get to show up and do it. So I always love getting a chance to do that and talk about different stuff uh, outside of the food industry too as well. Yeah, always kind of looking to connect with different people who are in the podcast space. And, you know, that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have David on, not just his beer background and being an advanced Cicerone, but going through that process, but also having a successful podcast um, that he focuses on beer and, and chocolate, you know, with kind of that movement in the chocolate industry too as well. You know, we had Carolina Quiano on from Esquisito, which is down in Miami. It's fantastic chocolate, but that was the first person you know, we got to have on from that world where how much it goes into sourcing and, and bringing it in, the different flavor profiles and the different percentages of, of chocolate and cacao and everything. And there's a whole background and everything in there. So, you know, there's a few other, you know, famous chocolatiers um, that are out there too as well. You know, Thomas Keller started one, Dandelion Chocolate, but their ownership ran into some kind of sketchy stuff with some employee stuff uh, a couple of years ago. So I'm not sure what's going on with them now. And there's a bunch of different others that you would find too as well. Some pop up on Instagram uh, in the ad section and and stuff too. But uh, she was one of our favorites. So you can check out that episode too as well. That was kind of back towards the beginning. She's got great products that you can order and have shipped to your doorstep. But that is it for this week's episode. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. You know, we really appreciate it. We appreciate everybody writing in all the questions, comments, feedback, uh, people willing to participate in the episodes, writing in questions that they want asked. So that's awesome to see. So keep that stuff coming. Uh, we really appreciate it. Really enjoy reading those comments, um, especially when, you know, somebody, like I mentioned earlier uh, at the top of the podcast, you know, they get to reconnect with somebody and they had a great experience with that person too, as well. That's always awesome to see. So more great stuff on the way. We should have a couple mini update episodes coming for you guys as well as a bunch of new episodes, first time guests. So it's always great to have kind of a mix of both all that stuff and then chefs and also, you know, sommeliers and, and kind of everything in between too. So super excited uh, for finishing the year strong here. Bunch of new episodes, great stuff on the way, but thank you again. And we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.